0: I'm a storyteller, so I, I really go into detail. And so depending on how much time I have, I can drop some details.
1: No, no, do not drop anything. Let's let's go big. I mean, if, if this takes five hours, let it be. <laughs> this is the Nelly show today.
0: Oh, you're so kind.
1: <laughs> Are you ready to go on record?
0: Yes, yes, let's do this.
1: <laughs> okay, let's do this. I love the energy. All right, so... <laughs> Welcome to Adelante, the podcast filled with inspiring stories of people embracing their uniqueness. I'm Alfonso Comino, your host. Our guest today is Nelly Cheboy. Nelly is the founder of TechLit Africa, a nonprofit organization digitalizing Africa. She has one of the most inspiring stories that can be told. Raised under extreme hardship and poverty in Kenya, she went to become a software engineer in the USA and has since used her savings to build schools across Africa. Nelly was recently named Forbes 30 and the 30 for her incredible achievements. This conversation will give you a taste of her beginnings in rural Africa, how a long plane ride changed the course of her future and the incredible work she and TechClick Africa are doing helping thousands of children. Nelly is the ultimate guest to have in the program. I'm honored to have had the opportunity to listen to some of her stories and share them with you on this podcast. Enjoy this inspiring conversation with Nelly Cheboy. Thank you so much, Nelly, for being with us today. You are the founder and CEO of TechLick Africa, a nonprofit organization building computer labs in rural Africa, and your organization is on a mission to see every student in Africa prepared to prosper in the digital economy. And such work has led you to be named Forbes 30 Under 30 for social impact in 2021. But before we get to all those amazing achievements, let's rewind all the way back you were born in a rural village in Kenya, Mogotio, which is around four hours north of Nairobi. Why don't you start a conversation telling us about your early beginnings?
0: Yes, sure thing. And I got to say, that is quite a succinct introduction, especially how you talk about TechLead Africa. I am going to go and update all our websites and social media to say what you just said <laughs> <laughs> because we're always going to find the right way to say it. So, yeah, I'm going to use that for sure. I'm Nelly Cheboy. I grew up in. Mogotio, which is, yes, four hours from Nairobi, and I grew up in abject poverty, and my story is not unique. This is commonly the stories of kids growing up in communities like mine. Some of them have it worse, some of them have it better, but that is the story. And so for me, uh, part of my determination and part of my drive to sustainably fix poverty come from my mom. I am the third born uh, in a family of four. So there's four of us, four girls and a single mom. And my mom barely went to school. So this is something I learned much later on. She worked really hard to put all four of us through school. She would go to different villages and buy goats and then come and sell it. Or she'll go to Uganda and buy clothes and come and try to sell clothes. She'll try different businesses. And then sometimes she'll get kicked out because she's a woman. Sometimes she, something will just happen or she'll get arrested because she's crossing the border and then she has to drop that business, try something else. And for 30 years, she will just try. Something fails, moves on to the next thing. Right. The amount of hard work she was doing was not even for herself, it was for her kids. And then I often overheard conversation from mostly friends of, of hers, mostly uh, male friends, who would tell her, Why do you work so hard for your girls? They're gonna get married. Why bother? They're gonna get married, I don't have to work this hard. So to see that um her working so hard for us, even though the society didn't mandate that And also how working so hard, not for herself, but for us, was just so empowering. And so my earliest memory of this incident when I was nine years old and my two elder sisters were in high school. So most high schools in Kenya are boarding schools. And then you pay to go to those high schools. And so she had gone to buy vegetables from Nakuru, which is the town over. And then she wasn't able to sell it. So she came home very late at night. And so I was forced to just feed my younger sister. So I was nine years old and she was three years old. And this started happening more often because she was really struggling to pay tuition for my two elder sisters. And so she'll rarely be home. So I would go to after a corn plantation i'll go and try to collect some corn husks grind it and make ugali which is a popular kenyan food there was a hospital nearby that will go and scavenge the trash pit to just get some cooking ingredients sometimes salt cooking oil so i can make something for my younger sister and every time she'll come back home I will sing to her this Kenyan song, which goes: "Mkono wangum dogo we hawezi kufanya kazi, utapumzika." And the song loosely translates to, "My hands are so tiny, I can't do anything, but when I grow up, I'm going to take care of you, and you're going to rest, uh, and you're gonna live like a queen." And so that promise, and seeing her working really hard. I just embraced education. And for me, really working hard in school meant taking any book I could find. So I would take all the books I could find, college books, high school books. I'll put it in my backpack. I had a really big backpack that was taller than me. And most of my teachers were actually concerned for my health, for carrying such a big backpack. But I would carry this backpack to school, go to school very early in the morning, because I was trying to get as much light, you mean daylight, because at home, my mom cannot afford kerosene. So I was reading all these sometimes high school books. I was living my life through these textbooks. And sometimes at night, i would go to the same hospital I used to scavenge the trash pits and just study until 2 a.m., which is not safe for a girl. But I just really, really embraced education. I ended up doing so well out of my primary education.
1: It's very hard to comment on what you said because it's such a foreign life from the one that most privileged people like myself had and for us it's so difficult to hear somebody like yourself grew up four sisters with a single mom who had to even cross borders to different countries to source for food and business and you had to help your sister and even as you mentioned you have to gather food from different places so i feel unequipped to comment back on such a life experiences, to be quite honest. And it's very touching to hear that you went on to not self-educate, but have to be very proactive on how you learn. And while you have to care for your younger sister and you have to put yourself through education, right? And despite all these difficulties, it's so difficult to believe, but you excel tremendously on your education. Is that correct?
0: I did. So the way the school is structured in Kenyans is that you go from class one to class eight, which is first grade to eighth grade, which is just a day school that some people go to private schools, some people go to boarding school, but it's mostly day schools. And that is a little bit cheaper. And then depending on what score you get from a national exam determines which high school you go to. And so that it tends to be a boarding school and also very expensive. So I graduated from my primary education. I was the top girl in the district which got me admitted into a really nice national school. And so when I went to that national school, my mom had already sold all her goats and cows, which is a form of wealth in Kenya, to put my two elder sisters through school. So she couldn't afford to put me through that high school. So I was constantly sent home to collect tuition. And I got admitted to a really nice high school, a national school in Nairobi, in Thika, which is the city. So it was my first time in the city. It was pretty cool. And so it used to cost me about 500 Kenya shillings, which is $5 for a bus fare. So often when I'm sent home to collect tuition, I'll just call my mom. She would send me $5. I'll pay for the bus fare and come home and help her with her businesses. Whichever business she was working on, I'll help her just enough to get bus fare. And then I'll go back. I'll go back and stay in school, kind of like lay low, catch up on studies until I'm sent home again to collect tuition. So every time I get back, I'll really catch up on my studies. And then every time I'm sent home, I'll just bring some notes from classmates. I'll bring it home. And as I'm helping my mom with the businesses that she's working on, I'm catching up on studies. And so uh, a lot of high school was not a great experience for me because I I was rarely in school And as I was a really happy, but poor kid, I didn't have the best experience because teachers felt like, why are you so happy? You're poor, you know? (laughs) Anyway, uh, I still graduated at the top of the class. So I got an A, which is really impressive. And then from that, got a full scholarship to come to America.
1: And before we get to that scholarship, two things that you mentioned that i like to touch on is you said you have to pay tuition. So we'll talk about the education in kenya and probably in africa and you also mentioned you have to pay the bus which is five dollars i think for a lot of people listening you might not be able to comprehend how much five dollars really meant back in the day for a family of yours that's a lot of money <laughs> yeah how much money do you think your whole family the five of you were able to do and save on a daily basis because then that would put that five dollars into context
0: Okay, so that's a really good question. So my mom, towards the end, she got really sick and weak, and she could have been travelling, so she opened a small restaurant it's like a um, a stand, a food stand, or a kiosk, if you say, and then so she'll wake up at five a m and bake mandazis and chapatis, some kind of Kenyan bread, and then she'll start that all day, and so on a good day, she'll probably sell ten dollars worth of the food. But then she will have to pay $8 back in ingredients, the stuff that she used to buy the ingredients. And so on a good day, she'll be making a profit of $2. But on a bad day, she may not be able to sell all the, the food and still have to pay the $8 for the ingredients. So she'll be at a loss. So when we are looking at, at $5, that is a series of three days of profits, right? But then sometimes things occur. Sometimes someone gets sick sometimes you need to buy dinner. So with that $2 to just get $5 for me to get a bus fare to go back to school or for her to send me. And often when I call her and tell her mom, I've been sent home to collect tuition, she'll have to borrow that $5 from someone to send it to me. And so when I'm coming to help her at the kiosk, she has to first pay back the $5 and then also accumulate another $5 to send me back, right? And so we're looking at about a week <laughs> just to to get five dollars for a bus fare,
1: right, so I think that put it well into context that five dollars it is a lot of money,
0: and the time I'm coming so often I'll be coming home to try to get two hundred dollars for tuition I owed, but then over time, that money kept piling up. But in the end, it was probably from freshman to senior year of high school, it was about three thousand dollars, which seems negligible, right It doesn't seem that much. But if you're looking at $2 profit a day, that's a lot of money. And so she wasn't able to make that much money.
1: Yeah, that sounds like a lot. And then suddenly your life changed. You got on a scholarship to study computer science in Illinois, in the USA. Yeah.
0: So I came to a liberal arts college, which is uh, a college uh, in Illinois. And so uh, part of my childhood dream was to be a pilot. And just the idea of flying out of poverty, because as I'm scavenging for food, a plane flew by and I'm like, oh, I want to be a pilot. And so I would, uh, when I was reading all these books in primary school and trying, uh, I just kept thinking what being a pilot was like, what flying was like. And I would ask everyone I knew, "Do you know, a pilot, have you ever flown? What's it like to be in a plane? And it's a village. Most people don't know that. The only career you see is a doctor, a teacher, and someone working in the police force. And so I couldn't comprehend what being a pilot was like. And so when I flew for the first time, I was so excited. And so I got a full scholarship to come to Augustana College. I didn't have to decide my major until junior year of college. So I knew that I was coming to America to be, study how to become a pilot. The funny thing is that the first time I flew to come to America, it was a 16-hour flight. And so I hated it. I was like, I, <laughs> I, I hated it. And it was just quite a, it was, I don't know, I can't even describe it. I just hated it. And I knew when I landed in Michigan that I did not want to be a pilot anymore. That just struck me. It was incredibly sad that I spent all my life trying to find a pilot trying to understand what being on a plane was like, reading all these books and I could not find answers. And the first time to kind of get an idea of what my childhood dream would be like, which is flying and being on the plane and being, it was just so clear that I didn't want to. And I kept thinking that had I grown up in America, I would have known. I would have known what being a pilot was like, maybe through the internet, maybe I would have flown at some point, I would have known. And the reason that I did not know is because I grew up in Kenya. So immediately just landing into America, even before all these things. I fact, Actually, I came in, I knew that America was cold. So I came in with a winter coat and it was 70 degrees that day. <laughs> so <laughs> the people picking me at the airport, they were so surprised. But just landing into America, that kept haunting me that I did not know. It became clear and clear through my various experiences in colleges that even though I was so hardworking, even though I read, my limit was the books that I had, right? As opposed to that if I had the internet, or if I had TV or if I was in America. And so that has continues to drive the kind of work I go into.
1: Yeah, so that plane ride really changed right? Because it gives you a perspective of something that you wish you had. But you had no knowledge about what I entitled. So when you actually experience firsthand, and I imagine coming from the spacious the lands of rural Kenya into a compressed plane going to a foreign land for the first time in your life. It must have been pretty shocking to land in the USA, which is already an adventure in itself. So it make you think about if we only had had access to broad information, which you describe as the internet, right? So even today, most rural places in Africa do not have access to the internet. Is that fair assessment?
0: They may have access to, they have smartphones and then people pay a small amount of data. So let's say you have a dollar. For a dollar, you get 50 MB of data, right? For only one hour. So you only get the internet in chunks. So you can imagine if you want to watch a YouTube tutorial, I'll have to plan. Okay, I'm going to watch a YouTube tutorial. I need to spare $2 So at the end of the day so I can take the time and watch a video But then it's only 50 MB, so maybe I may not be able to finish. So most people, when they use the internet, is mostly for social media, going to WhatsApp or going to Facebook Lite. And so you don't really see the kind of utility you see here where people are using the internet as a means of production. Imagine if you only had access to the internet for one hour a day, but then it was also not unlimited. You won't even start thinking about using the internet for learning using the internet for creating. It's just going to be this luxury that you have. At the end of the day, just lay down and catch up on some (laughs) memes.
1: Yeah, you won't have the serendipity spirit to go around and figure out what are the options out there on the internet and learning, like you said. And if you have to pre-schedule everything, you kind of limit yourself, right?
0: Yeah, and also the idea of finding answers. It's it's pretty convenient now. I have a question. I just look it up, done. We don't have a culture of that because you, you have to plan.
1: Yeah, we give it for granted. So that took you back to the USA and then somehow you changed to computer science. How was that transition?
0: When I got to America, I was trying to find a new major. So I started to major in chemistry first because I was good in chemistry in high school and I figured, let me just study it. But even before I discovered computer science, I had some work to do. So my mom was still in the kiosk baking chapattis and mandazis. At the time, the business was not doing so well. So she was really losing a lot of money more than making it, but she has She had been working for 30 years, so she was not going to just retire like that. And so the first thing I did is through a work-study program, I could earn $8 an hour. So I got a job as a janitor. So on weekends from 6 a.m. to noon, I'll clean the toilets in the dorms. And then over the week, I'll uh, work at the cafeteria. So because I was a student, I could only work 20 hours a week. So I'll max out on those 10 hours a week, and I'll save all that money. And the idea was to deliver the promise I made to my mom, which is I'm going to take care of her when I'm able to, and she won't have to work anymore. And so it took me a year and then I saved up $700, (laughs) almost all my savings from a minimum wage job. And then I bought a piece of land. I bought one eighth of an acre of land. And then I realized that it took me a year to just buy this piece of land. It's gonna take me so much longer to even build a house for her. She wasn't doing so well; like her health was really deteriorating. She may not even be able to move into this house if I'm looking at seven hundred dollars a year savings. So instead, I went back, continued saving, borrowed some money for some friends, like five hundred dollars here and there, and then flew to Kenya, went to a slum in Nairobi, and bought a truckload of furniture, like couch and a bed, even a spoon. I brought everything, drove four hours to to Mogotio, and just told my mom, we are getting out of this house. So the house we grew up in was the one without electricity, no latrine on site, no running water. And normally during rainy season, it would just be leaking from left and right. And so we'd have to find a dry place. It wasn't a safe house. I moved my family out into... really nice apartment so they were paying three dollars a month in that almost like a a slum right a shack they were paying three dollars a month there so i moved them into an apartment which cost forty dollars a month and it had water on site a latrine on site it had electricity it was two bedroom really nice furniture and for the first time we were actually having visitors over and taking pictures in the house which we didn't used to do growing up in the earlier house, and so I told my mom, "You don't have to worry. Enough to worry. Work anymore. You just relax. I'll take care of you." She didn't listen to me. She continued working, but then in the end, uh, someone came in and broke in and stole all our equipment, and so she had no equipment to keep making food. So she stopped. I was kind of happy about that because it finally got her to stop. So my family was in this nice house, and so I flew back to America, but then. I was on the hook to sustain them because I just moved them into a nice apartment, which is expensive. I just introduced electrical bill to their cost. I've introduced a lot of more things. And so I was on the hook to support them. And then I realized that if I keep supporting them, I'm never gonna get to my community. And remember my idea has been to change the narrative of kids growing up in communities like mine. Because even though I did not have a childhood, I really keep imagining what it looks like for a Kenyan kid in rural Africa to have all the amenities that a kid in the suburb of Chicago has, right? What kind of life does that lead, right? And so that was all at the back of my head. If any money I make amid my studies is going to support this life that I brought upon them, it's really hard to go on to the next project I want to work on. So... After thinking a lot, I came up with the idea to build a school. It's a private school. The kids going to the school are going to pay to go to the school. So they're paying $10 a month, which doesn't seem much, but it adds up. And then my elder sister, Sharon, had a diploma in elementary education. And so Sharon could run the school, hire teachers, provide for the kids. And as an income from the school, she was able to support my family. So... Ever since I built the school, I've never needed to send money home and support them. And all of this was happening before my junior year of college. So (laughs) all of this was happening when I'm just trying to get a chemistry major. And so what happened after I finished building the school? Building the school cost me about $3,000 to start with. And then I needed to add more to it. I'd gotten $2,000 through an internship program. And I was able to use that as a down payment to build the school. And then also my savings, I used to work uh, over the summer. I'll never go on vacation so because that was prime time. I could work 40 hours as opposed to 20 hours a week. So I saved all that money and I started building the school from the land that I bought when I was trying to build my mama house. So I built a school instead. And so when I was doing that, I discovered computer science. Because, remember, growing up in Mogotio, I didn't know anything about the internet. I didn't know much about computers. And the first time I really used a computer is when I was applying to colleges in the U.S. But I was just doing entering fields. And so I needed to take a computer science class for my math major. And it was an introduction to Java. And I just fell in love with it. And again, the voice that the reason you don't know anything about computers the reason I don't know anything about software engineering is simply because you grew up in rural Kenya, nothing else. You're the most hardworking person you are. You did everything you could. And it's not my fault that I don't know anything about computers, even though it's such an amazing resource. And so it kind of coincided that I was building a school and kids were going to the school. And so I started thinking about what would look like to bring this awesome resource to my community. And it just came together so nicely. Because with my obsession on sustainably fixing poverty, what it really came down to is that we had some systemic issues that were avoiding us, like were preventing people to to lift up, right? For example, if you are a business person, if you're a woman selling tomatoes, you're very hardworking, and, you make a little bit of profit, you have your old family waiting for you. So You need to pay tuition for someone to go to school. Someone is sick, you need to pay for their medical bills. There's a funeral fundraiser over here you need to donate to. And then in the end, it's really hard to take that profits and continue to build your business. Let's say you want to get a loan. You're looking at 13% interest rate on the lowest end. Let's say you want to transport your tomatoes to other markets. It's really bad roads. And so with this kind of system, it's really hard to go from small business owners into middle businesses and therefore employ more people. And therefore, it's really hard to have a middle class. That's, that's what I think is what the economy is, middle class, being able to create jobs and hire more people. But then if you look at the internet, if you look at computers, you don't need to have the best roads. You don't need to have the best interest rates. You don't need to have the best financial infrastructure. If you have a computer and you're connected, you can access all these jobs. You can be building websites for Google. You can be a QA engineer. You can be streaming for Twitch and making money that way. There's so much more jobs available online than there ever be available locally at any place. And so it's so easy with access to computers and with access to the internet, we are just leapfrogging all these systemic issues because it's gonna be so hard to improve our banking infrastructure, our roads. It's just a lot easier to bring people online and give them the means of production. That's the, the other bit that people don't really understand is that even though you're online, if you don't know how to create, and produce value online, it's not as useful. That's when I discovered computer science, when I was building the school. And so I dropped my chemistry major and started studying computer science. I only had one year left, and so I got a computer science degree in one year.
1: Wow. Okay, okay. I need to do some wrap-up here, because my pen is on fire. (laughs) I take notes, so I make sure I don't miss on the follow-up, but this was, uh, I think I burned a whole page here let me recap. Well, you were, I'm going to guess in your early 20s, you work as much as you could on the minimum salary in the US to send as much money as, as you could to Kenya, bought a land, move your family to what we will give for granted today, about a house with a toilet and electricity with what cost more than 10x what they were paying before. And then you build a school remotely we led you to discover the power of computers and how computers can help you leapfrog the disadvantage on infrastructure that many places in Africa in general suffer. And I inspire you then to change your study focus to computer science, even though you only had one year to graduate.
0: Yeah. <laughs> I was 19.
1: 19. So you, you built a school cross continents at 19 years old.
0: I mean, no, I came to America when I was 19. So I was building because I was 20, 21 when I was building the school.
1: Wow. And your sister, Sharon, still runs the school, and she's the one who helped you on the ground, right?
0: Yes, yes. And the school right now is a 4 storied building. Uh, recently, I just built a four-story building, costing me $300,000.
1: Get to that in a second. I know you're eager to tell. <laughs> yeah. I just want to say, before you went to build a school of $3,000, US something must happen in between, right? You build one school, you started computer science... What is the process between then and the 300K school is that you met somebody called Tyler and then together, what, what did you and Tyler did when you met?
0: So then I graduated in 2016 uh, out of uh, Agustana College with a computer science and applied mathematics uh, degree. So this time I'm just thinking about technology and all this. The school was already running for, for about six months. We had almost 100 kids. So my sister just did a very good job just building the school providing the best service. And so I could not get a job as an engineer, actually, because I had no internship experience. Even in the computer science classes, I was really bad because I did not know what a terminal was. I did not even know how to do a simple Google search because I didn't grow up with computers, right? And so some things were assumed to just be basic knowledge in that class, but I did not know touch typing was one of them. I used to think that I need to look at the keyboard hard enough and I'll be able to type as fast as my American peers. And it took me a while to figure out that what they were doing is that they they know the layout of the keyboard and it's called touch typing. It took me a really long time to know that. And so I could not get a job as a software engineer. I ended up getting a job as a business analyst at a moving company in Chicago. That's where Tyler was working as a software engineer there. So we met there in October 2016 and when we met I was collecting computers so I was already thinking about building a computer lab at Zawadi which is the school I built and so what I was doing is I was collecting computers and just asking my friends to donate their computers and the plan was I wanted to install a little bit of content so Khan Academy videos I wanted to install Wikipedia just uh like an intranet server so that the kids there can start learning about the internet because I assumed that what they needed was the internet. What they needed is just having information like YouTube and Wikipedia to look things up. And then Tyler and I dated, we started dating almost immediately. And in 2018, we flew to Kenya. He was flying to Kenya to meet my family, and I was flying to go build a computer lab. So I brought five computer labs in my suitcase. So since he was also flying, I also put five computer labs in his luggage, flew to Kenya and built the first computer lab. And so he was there the whole time, (laughs) you know, kind of helping me with cloning the computers with Linux, loading Wikipedia, downloading Khan Academy. And so we went to Zawadi and we built the first computer lab. And so what we did is that our idea was we just need to get these adults to start building websites wordpress website we just need them to just start creating stuff right and we were only there for two weeks because we were still working and so we tried running it it wasn't really picking up it was very too complicated for them because they were doing Rails server and all these things and then we came back to america and we thought that we're just gonna leave the computer lab open give someone a key and they can come in anytime and use the computers and look at the content and and all that And so we came back to America. This is uh, September, 2018. And then we we were living together at that point. Our lease expired in 2019. We had our amount saved. I had $35,000 saved. He had similar amount of money saved. And we thought, we have enough money. We don't need to keep working. Let's take a break. Let's take a gap year. And so we quit our jobs, put all our furniture that we had on the street for someone to take if they want and flew to Kenya. And the whole idea for flying to Kenya was to figure out why this computer lab did not work. Because what ended up happening is that no one was coming to the lab. Our initial hypothesis was that someone is going to steal the computers, but the computers were still there collecting dust. No one was coming to use it. And so in 2019, we stayed there for five months. And these five months, we were going to figure out exactly why no one was using these computers. And so... We quickly realized that what was happening is that people will come into the lab, they'll look at all the content that we had, and then they'll leave. Which makes sense. Who wants to just sit there and read Wikipedia without needing to look for any some answers? And so we thought, okay, maybe we just need to start getting these people making money online. We got someone in Chicago to give us $200, and then that $200, we would pay them. Uh, to build a website with us. But because they never used a computer before, it was really hard to help them with the data entry. So we'll do most of the jobs and they will learn. But then it was just hard for them to keep coming back. We're like, we just need to grow by 5% every day. So we only had three people who were showing up every day. We're like, okay, let's just work to get the fourth person to show up. And I think looking back now, it was just so much to ask for because these youth, they are trying to see what they can eat that day. So to ask someone to come in and and spend the time to learn WordPress, to work on the internet, they've never seen that before and it was really hard for them to comprehend. So after a month of really trying to get youth and adults to just do any jobs online, we realized that it really <laughs> requires a lot of commitment, not even commitment, a lot of context. And And when they're already 21, life gets in the way and it's really hard for them to do. But meanwhile, we had kids. Kids will come into the lab and they will play just this one game we had there by accident. So we decided to switch our operating system, switch our focus from adults because it was really sad. Because ideally we wanted them to just make money already and start living in the out of poverty, and we focused on kids because we realized that it really takes a lot of training and a lot of getting used to, to start making money online and to start being comfortable with using computers as a means of production. With kids, the numbers were insane. The first day it was 60 kids, the next day it was 120, the day after it was 300.
1: Talk about 5%. (laughs) Yeah,
0: I know, almost like insane growth, which is amazing to see, but there's only the two of us and we only had 16 computers. So we capped at 300 kids and we were there from 6 a.m. to 6 p.m just working with kids and they'll just come in and they'll learn basic things like uh, playing a game. We went as far as playing a networked game where the game will be connected and they'll all compete with each other. So a multiplayer game, locally networked because we had an intranet server, but then they'll be chatting with each other. They'll start talking about server, internet cable, networking. So it was really cool to see them and we have really awesome videos on our Instagram page. Just see them really kind of becoming techies it was so natural to them like oh yeah debug that like connect to the wi-fi do this the router is down and it was so amazing to see but what happened what was really clear to us was that it was mostly the boys who were coming because the girls will come one day and then the next day they don't come and the reason is that most of the girls are responsible at home for chores if there's a younger sibling, it's the girl who takes care of the younger sibling. If the mom is going to the market to sell tomatoes, it's the girl who is helping the mom sell tomatoes. Just like I was, right? If Techlet Africa existed when I was growing up, I wouldn't have have access to it. If that kind of Techlet Africa, where it's an open lab where people just go to the school on their free time and use it, I wouldn't have had access to it. And so we quickly realized that to guarantee equal access, we need to go to schools. If you go to schools, a mom will never say, don't go to school, come help me with tomatoes. The mom will always say, no, go to school. And then maybe after school, you can help me with the tomatoes selling in the market, or you can help me with the sibling. But when it's school time, it's school time. And so we came back in December, 2019, after spending five months in Kenya, working with over 1,200 kids, we came back knowing exactly that we wanted to go into schools and build computer labs. But we also knew what did not work. And what did not work is that if you just put computers in school, no one uses it because sometimes the teachers, they are really busy or they don't know how to use it. So we needed to give a really awesome service when it comes to the computer lab.
1: Wow. So a lot of questions again. <laughs> you mentioned Sawadi. Not that I know, but I had to Google search. Seems to be in the Indian Ocean and it's closer to Mombasa than Nairobi, is that correct? That seems to be quite far away.
0: Sorry, so Zawadi is the name of the school, sorry.
1: Oh, but it's in Mogotio. Yeah. Got it, got it. I had to check. Zawadi so is the original school in Mogotio that had the first computer lab that was the origin of TechLit. So that was V1. Yeah, V1. A lot of learnings. And <laughs> one of the learnings that, if I can paraphrase, is that you discovered vertical integration was success because if you don't have everything at once, you don't have the learning, you don't have the information, the computers and the maintenance all combined, it's very hard to get adoption. And especially, as you mentioned, from females, which is heartbreaking. In. So with all those learnings and that incredible experience, how did you went on to take this single space into the incredible movement that is today what happened next
0: okay so we came back to america knowing that we needed to just ship enough computers and shipping is a podcast on its own so (laughs) we were just trying to import as many computers as we can so we shipped enough computers for for 10 computer labs and so we came back we packed up the pallets with about 150 computers so desktop monitors uh mouse keyboard all that shipped it to kenya and then the pandemic hit so most of the pandemic was just us waiting because all the schools in Kenya were closed. So the entire country was on lockdown. No no one was going to schools. And so we just waited. And then so this year, when the borders opened and the kids resumed, we went back to Kenya. And so the idea this time was to go into schools and build the computer labs. And so the way we were building the computer labs is that we'll go into schools and talk to them about the idea, which is we want kids to work on the internet remotely, be it social media marketing, tech jobs, you know, design, all these things. We want to enable them to do that without requiring to acquire further education. And we were saying that if you give us a chance to come to and spend every day with these kids, we will achieve that. Most schools will say no, because what are you talking about? (laughs) You know, (laughs) they have no idea what working on the internet is. And so some schools took a chance on us. And then those schools, what we'll ask of them is for them to give us a room. The room is secured as electricity. And then we'll come in with, sometimes we'll come in with tables and our computers. And our computers already had, you know, our content. And so the kids will come in. We also recruited youth members from the community because we realized that if we use the teachers in the school, they sometimes don't have a whole day to spend on this computer lab. They have their own classes to do. They don't even have the time to do the training that is required to run Techled classes. And so we took the youth and we, we paid them so they can actually give Techled their undivided attention because if they are volunteers, then they have to go and find money somewhere else to eat that night. And so they will come in and we'll spend most of weekends and and evenings just training them, training them on touch typing, training them on 3D modeling, training them on design, training them on all those things that we need to teach to the kids. And then those teachers, they spend all day in the schools. They spend all day in the computer labs. They're there from 8 a.m. to 4 p.m. So let's say from 8 a.m. to 8.50 lesson, we have, let's say, a first grade come in and, and they learn about mouse movement. And then we have... Seventh grade come in and they're learning about touch typing. And then we have eighth grade come in and learning about coding. And so with this kind of model, we were seeing the whole school, which sometimes is like 800 kids every two days. So it wasn't a token project. We were there with the kids every single day. They were growing up with this resource. It wasn't a summer camp that we just show up once a month. No, it wasn't that. With this, we saw that it has been working so well. These kids are learning about, they know touch typing now. And for me to see really like tiny kids, touch typing is so emotional. It, it's so heartwarming for me because it took me such a long time to get a job as a software engineer because I could not even type a function. Like I can solve a function on a piece of paper but if you tell me to solve a coding challenge it will take me forever to find the keys i need to type that people think i don't know what i'm talking about right and so it was really hard for me to pass uh, so to see these tiny kids Touch typing, they're doing coding. And also, the most important thing is about the skills they're learning. They're learning about collaborative learning, pair programming, problem solving. They're learning about finding your own answers. They're learning about self teaching, which is that they're watching a YouTube tutorial and then they follow along and do coding. So, they don't even need us. And these skills are so important when it comes to just being able to be productive online. Nobody knows everything. You just need to be able to search your answers, you just need to find people to pair with. You just needed to find the night tutorial to follow. And so with this kind of model, we have partnered with 12 schools, about uh, 6,000 kids total. We are going to spend all our time, all our investment for them to just get the best, the best information they can get.
1: Really incredible. And it takes me out to the point, how do you get the first 150 computers? You brush over that like it's something that you did overnight and then you ship them during COVID, but I'm sure that wasn't something that was so easy. How did you get all of those computers?
0: We got them from companies we used to work at. I got them from ShipBub. also got them from Agustana College. And then Tyler also got it from his previous company.
1: Awesome. And then you put it in a container, you ship it. And then what I'm most interested about is how do you teach the people that's working with you on the land in Africa about how to become computer teachers for these kids when they didn't have that experience and they might be adults now. What is the process of teaching somebody up to speed?
0: So now that we are going through the process of teaching adults again, but this time we are teaching them as our own educators, we realized what was lacking in the model that we tried before. What we just needed to do is that we needed to do it in groups and we needed to pay them. Because if you can pay them to spend the time to learn they're not distracted because if you are supposed to volunteer or you're supposed to show up for six hours a day to just learn touch typing but then you have to worry about getting food at night you have to worry about what am i gonna eat how am i gonna make rent how am i gonna take care of my family it's really hard it's a big commitment to ask people but then if they're coming in and they're getting paid so it's part of the investment then they actually do learn and they actually are productive. The goal is that to get our teachers to graduate out of TechLit, to go on and start making much more money than they are making as TechLit educators. And then we can onboard more teachers and take them through the training. A really big part of this is that we are both software engineers. We build most of the applications ourselves. So for touch typing, it was a React app that Tyler built overnight. Um, and so the touch typing itself is very directive as long as we have supervision. The kid can just follow the app and then be able to learn touch typing with something like coding they're just watching a YouTube video and following along, posing it, following along. So our product itself is self directive because we're trying to promote self efficacy we're trying to motivate kids to self teach on their own, so instead of spending. Intense amount of <laughs> teaching the adults and giving them all these skills that they need to. We are instead making a product that is very intuitive and directive for the kids. For example, we're thinking of teaching how to represent themselves online, how to communicate, how to make a profile. What do you say? And so uh, we put together an application that they can just chat and they can build their own profile. They're constantly learning, and so it's all in our product. But the coolest thing is that the educators are there every day. And as a result, they are learning how the product is working or is not working. And then from those learnings, we are improving the product. And we also have have two software engineers that we have trained enough that they're actually contributing to supporting the product. So initially, it was mostly Tyler who was working on the products because I was busy doing everything else. As a CEO, you are doing all the crappy stuff slowly he has trained two more of our educators to actually support the product. And so he doesn't need to be involved as much. And that's the kind of training we're looking into because we need to prove that once they go through tech like these kids, there's a pipeline for them to get out and either get jobs online or they have enough skills to be able to get jobs online on their own.
1: So basically you are providing the on-ramp that most people in the Western world give for granted to the internet, right? the access to learn the basics on yourself and realize that you can explore anything you want when you learn how to use the basics on the internet and then the sky becomes the limit, right?
0: Yeah, also the skills for sure, because some some of this is not intuitive, like t- touch typing or design uh, or coding.
1: Yeah, and I want to highlight how important it is what you're doing, taking able Kenya, but Africa in general gets completed is because in Africa, I believe there are just over 50 countries, and it's 1.2 billion people. So nearly two out of every 10 people in the world uh, is in Africa today. But the most important fact is that the median age in Africa and the whole continent is below 20 years, which is it's nearly 40 in the US and China. It's way well over 40 in Europe, and it's 48 in Japan. Well. Wow a problem that we will have if we don't help all of those beautiful people to digitalize in the same way that the rest of us keep for granted, right? So what you're doing is really inspiring, Nelly, and you have opened 10 labs with those 150 computers. What's next? What's the next target?
0: (laughs) So we want to 10x our growth because we are really ambitious. So for next year, we want to build 100 computer labs, and so for those 100 computer labs, we're looking at 2,000 computers, a little bit over $300,000.
1: Okay. So you're looking for 2,000 computers, 300K. And that's because you're building this really big school that you briefly mentioned before. How big is that school?
0: <laughs> to build 100 computer labs, we need 200 teachers. And so they need to be paid for their training. And then we need to ship these 2,000 computers over to Kenya. So the 300K is going to go towards starting the 100 computer labs and that's going to be 40,000 kids. So the school is a completely different project. So remember uh, when I built a school, it was um, so private school, right? And so the school, I could not fundraise for the school. Techler Africa is a nonprofit. It's a 501 c 3 All donations are tax deductible. For the school, I cannot fundraise for it. So the school has been a different venture that I've been working on. And so the idea for the school has been to, how does it look like to give a kid in Mogotio all the amenities they need? Think about dancing, ballet, tennis, gymnastics, pretty awesome facilities. I still am a software engineer. So all my income from my software engineering has gone towards building the school. So the four-story building that you see now, I paid that out of my salary because I cannot fundraise for that. And so the coolest thing is that as part of the school, I've also added a vocational training for women. And that is such a big step towards combating domestic violence. Because if they have their own income, they don't have to d- depend on their husbands, especially so if they're abusive, they can walk away if they want to. They can support themselves. They, they don't have to stay in an abusive marriage just because they can't sustain themselves. They have a source of income. Right. So, completely different project. <laughs>
1: Two amazing projects, and I can't believe you run all that across continents. Yeah. (laughs) And on that last topic that you mentioned, some time ago I had some research that if you want to donate any money that you have, the absolutely best value for money that you will ever get of that donation is if you donate to underprivileged women. There is nothing better than that, especially if they are younger, because like you say, you can provide them with an education, you can provide them with a safety net from not having to depend on doing manual labor or other much more horrendous things so what you're doing is really on that swimming lane and it's fantastic so it's really inspiring to hear from you what are some of the biggest challenges that somebody like myself will be blindsided to understand that you have to go through quite often and it's like why it's incredibly complicated to achieve x because of y and people like myself for example will not comprehend why
0: oh so many the easiest one is to realize just how much people don't get it. I don't even mean the people in terms of the donors here. I mean the people on the ground that are trying to help. So for example, the schools will be like, what is it in for you? Why, why are you building these computer labs? Like what, what are you trying to do here? And so some schools would actually fight you, right? So like not everyone is coming up with open arms and be like, yes, let's help our kids. Some of them are, really against it and they are really fighting and it's really sad maybe they don't have the context they don't understand what this is and so they will try to fight it but still it's just the amount of education you have to give the people who are in charge in terms of the the school heads and the county government just the amount of education just the amount of patience it has to take because you keep thinking i'm doing this to help you like i'm doing this for free i'm doing this to help the kids why are you fighting me so much why are you making us jump through so many hoops why are you shutting us down right it is really incredibly hard it's so easy to just like pack our bags and be like okay i'm done this is an this is impossible to get most of them to understand uh, that this is impactful and that we just have good intentions <laughs> And then also shipping the computers, importing the computers is also a really big challenge because it cost us about 50% of the computer's value to get them into the country. So that 150 computers that we imported uh, last year, that cost us $10,000. So most of our fundraising efforts actually go towards just to get the computers over there and get the program running. And so we have tried to get waivers from the government for these computers to be imported, but it's it's still incredibly hard. You just keep fighting. It is so easy to give up. <laughs> you know this. You're doing your own business. It's so easy to give up every day. Sometimes giving up is the easiest thing to do. It's so hard to keep going because of all the challenges that you encounter. And yeah, <laughs> it's still the same. Doing a business is not easy.
1: <laughs> it feels like you're. Comments are two sides of the same coin, which is the resistance from from local people to get help when you come from, you know, you've seen the perspective, you come from the same place, and you have seen the impact that it had on yourself. And you want that impact for as many people as possible and not being able to have frictionless landing experience there in Africa must be incredibly frustrating. And when you speak, it's easy to see how you feel about it.
0: <laughs> yeah, to get easier.
1: Yeah, I mean, what an amazing story. like Africa racing between 200k to 300k and you have a really nice website that we will link in the show notes and before we get to that is there anything that you say oh i wish we had talked about something that i I didn't ask you or we didn't cover is there any topic that is really burning that you want to talk about
0: we also do accept computer donations so if you know of a company upgrading their it equipment and they're looking for a good home there's no better place than (laughs) Techlet.
1: And how can people reach you or reach the organization? If they're interested to learn more and they want to go to their website, can you give us the key items where they can find more information about TechLink Africa?
0: I am on LinkedIn all the time. So you can just find me with my Nelly Cheboy. My email is just nellycheboyatechleadafrica.org.
1: Okay, so we'll put down the show notes and as well as the donation page. There's tons of content on your website, which I use as a sourcing for the questions I ask you today. So I encourage anybody to read. There's way more items in there that we have covered today. And Nelly, it's been really amazing to hear your story. Before we let you go, there is this closing question that I ask to everybody that comes in the show. And that is, and I'm particularly excited to ask you this one. (laughs) What are you most excited about the future?
0: For me, it's sustainability. It's so easy to put Band-Aid solutions on things. Someone is hungry, give them food. Of course, if they're hungry now, give them food now. But they're going to be hungry tomorrow. And for me, no matter the challenges we're facing right now in terms of getting donations or getting tech adoption, I know that in 10 years, Mogotio will not be the same. I know that Mogotio will not need any kind of aid because all those people would have become self-sustaining. They would have acquired the skills they need and they'll be able to leverage the internet and they'll have the luxury of volunteering and they'll have the luxury of pursuing their passions because they don't have to worry about the basic needs. And to be able to give someone the power, it's just, it's really the best investment there is. You you invest in someone in 10 years and they will never need you anymore, right? Because they're able to sustain themselves. And so for me, I'm just really excited about seeing the kind of impact Techlet has towards sustainably fixing poverty. We're going to be obsolete really quickly because everyone will just be able to do this on their own and, and start leveraging the internet to make money. And kids will have a childhood. Kids will have all these opportunities.
1: Well, what a beautiful thought. So we hope all the work you're doing in Telic Africa becomes that snowball effect that you mentioned about uh you know, elevating everybody in the communities to a more prosperous future and sustainable so they can self-fund themselves and have better education. And one step out of time, digitalize the whole Africa. Nelly, I hardly ever talk to people as inspiring as yourself. I mean, you built a school across countries when you were 19 and rightly named Forbes 30 under 30 for the incredible work you're doing, so. I'm really thankful that you took the time to talk to us. And I can only wish you and Tech Lead Africa the absolute very best.
0: Thank you so much for having me.
1: If you would like to donate to Tech Lead Africa, you will find links in the show notes. If you like this conversation with Nelly, please tell one or two friends. Also, please leave a comment and a rating, whatever you get your podcast from. That will help like-minded people discover the show. If you want to reach us directly, our email is hi at kinsugi.com or you can hit me on Twitter at alfonso underscore comino. Thank you for listening. Adelante!